welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. So finally, after a long break, I bring you a new podcast, and this is with Rosa Ariaga. She's a developmental psychologist by her background degree and PhD and has transitioned into computer science as a senior research scientist in the School of Interactive Computing at Georgia Tech in the US. In this conversation, she talks about her journey of becoming a computer scientist, and she has this really nice way of talking about the way that she's basically been able to apply the toolkit that she brings from her psychology background and interpret the toolkit for dealing with technology problems, in particular around chronic disease management. And she talks about the reward that she gets from seeing real impact in people's lives from being able to do this work. She's also recently taken on the role of Chair of Graduate Affairs and talks with passion about her role in making processes and expectations clear and easy and in promoting the importance for students of considering their whole selves and looking after their whole selves. So much to take away from this conversation. Enjoy. Rose, it's great that we've been able to finally catch up and, and chat. I feel the same way. Thank you. Um, so... First of all, though, I think the question I'm most curious about is how does someone with a PhD in developmental psychology from Harvard end up in a college of computing at Georgia Tech? Right. So true to the nature of your, of your podcast, it's life, right? Yeah. You set out to do something and then you end up doing something very different. So um, my husband's a computer scientist and I'm a psychologist or... And uh, we got our, my husband's already at MIT, and I got a first job in New Hampshire. And then it would get so bad in the, you know, kind of the border between Massachusetts and New Hampshire, sometimes I couldn't get back. Oh, do you mean commuting? Yes, commuting, sometimes with the crazy weather. And so, so we had our first child. So was this a long distance was, commute? Or I'm just from California. Daily, I'm from daily. Southern California. And so I always say that it was 50 miles, but it was only like 50 or 40 minutes. So I felt really good. And I crossed the border, you know, a state border. So it was fine. And you did this twice a day? Yes. But I, I didn't mind it, actually. Because, again, I'm from California. And where you, in 50 minutes, you don't go, you know, 10 miles. <laughs> but um, so then we had to be serious about what we wanted, our quality of life for our family. And so we went out on the job market, and uh, Georgia Tech made us an offer we couldn't refuse, and somebody waved the magic wand, yeah. and they put me in uh, interactive computing, which is a fantastic place to be, mm -hmm. uh, Georgia Tech. Um, and so I had a set of skills that I didn't realize applied. And if you think about Norman's, you know, psychology of every, you know, uh, or even the fact that he's actually a cognitive neuroscientist, yeah. I really had a home, yeah. an intellectual home. So who made that connection? Because like, that's interesting that you didn't realize that there was that right. link. So one of the things I say is that I had never heard of HCI. I didn't know HCI existed. Mm. Which is human-computer interaction. Yeah, which is human-computer interaction. No. And so it was really interesting because my husband's a senior person, uh, mm. you know, yeah. uh, computer uh, theoretical computer scientist. And so they basically put out a call saying, who could, who could use a psychologist in their lab? And Gregory Abaud was just starting 
all of his work in autism. And he was like, wow, she'd be great. And so it really comes back to mentorship. And, yeah. and of course, uh, Gregory is having a 55th birthday. And, you know, he's been a friend and a mentor since uh, 2006. Yeah. And so he really, I mean, he, he did write one of the books. And so to be able to have someone that, you know, now we say allies, but someone that could say, hey, you can do this. And then um, there's some aspect of personality, mm. right? Mm -hmm. I, I like to bloom where I'm planted. And so mm -hmm. if this was going to be my home, I was yeah. going to make the best of it. Yeah. And so uh, in the long run, it's worked out really beautifully. And I, it's an amazing story of, I don't know, like, I, don't, I want to say serendipity, but it's sort of not serendipity as such. So uh, my, favorite, my favorite quote is uh, from Pasteur, mm -hmm. and it says that chance favors a prepared mind. Yes, yeah. And so I think, you know, maybe it's a kind of transition, but really the kind of training you received and the kind mm. of training I received in my doctoral program, it really taught me how to think. Mm. And so, you know, as I think about my role now as Associate Chair of Graduate Studies in Interactive Computing at Georgia Tech, I say that's the goal. We don't know what we're going to prepare our students for. We can't even imagine. Yeah. And so what we need to do yeah. is train them on, you know, on a toolkit that they're going to be able to apply to problems yeah. they can't even imagine. Yeah. I want to come back to the graduate college mm -hmm. later. Um, just, just sticking with the, with the job you know, transition yeah. and that, mm -hmm. were you applying to psychology for jobs yourself and were you applying to psychology schools? So that was another thing that happened. And the idea was that we were going to be at Georgia Tech. It was going to be a transition for me. I was going to decide, you know, what I would do in three years. I was able to up. teach. Exactly. <laughs> I was able to teach in psychology. Georgia Tech does have a psychology department. So I would be able to teach in psychology and in computer science. So that was sort of the thinking. Yes. That I would be there for three years and then, you know, maybe I'd go to a different university where yeah. I felt more at home. Yeah. But um, within those three years, I really appreciated what HCI had to offer and really, I felt I was super qualified once I realized what it was. Yeah. Because we were doing the same things. We were just using a different lexicon, right? Mm. And maybe for different ends. Right. I mean, research, right. uh, packaging. Right. Ends, you know, right. No, so definitely my worldview is still very post-positivist. Mm. But that's the great thing about, you know, my current department is that there are people that you know, they do qualitative work and do mm. ethnomethodologies. And I've really mm. learned to appreciate what all mm. that brings to the table mm. when you're trying to answer back to that toolkit, mm. when you're trying to answer these kinds of questions that I never imagined. And would that be different in a psychology department? Is Definitely. it just much more um, well, homogeneous? I, in, it is. In it is. It's very homogeneous. It is very much about the experimental methods. It is very much about the iterative tweaking Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about even the models that we use in computer science, we have conferences. The turnaround time is six months. Mm. Right. Yeah. In psychology, the turnaround time for an article is like a year and a half. And, and not only that, but even now when I speak to psychologists, I have to say in psychology, a conference is just preliminary results. In, com in computer science, they're peer reviewed. They're blind peer reviewed. So the whole model is very different. And so computer science does move at light speed. Mm. And so um, it is about frontiers, mm. whereas my 
you know, and I've done this now for, for a decade, you know, my approach is much more iterative because I want to know why did it work? Under what condition will it work? So I, I still very much am a psychologist. So you, you bring your strengths as a psychologist and the way that you would frame questions and the way that you would investigate it to a different set of problems. Exactly, exactly, to a very different set yeah. of problems. And also, I think one of the things that I bring to computer science is my desire to have these systems work in the real world for extended periods of time, right? Like I said, you know, my closest collaborator is Gregory Abaud, mm. and he is just always thinking about future computing and my answer is, but, you know, we have these problems now, whether it's asthma or diabetes or autism or post-traumatic stress disorder. Or connecting a laptop to a power, for power, sure. power projector. Right. So I think as, as I've become a computer scientist, I think my values have really, and this is not from my background as a psychologist, right? Because, mm. I mean, I was very mm. flighty. I did epistemology and, uh, and uh, cognitive science. So my question for my dissertation topic was mathematicians in the cradle, fact or fiction. So it isn't as if I come from an applied background. I was completely, that was not, that's farthest from the truth. I was very theoretically driven. But when you get to computer science and you see the power that you have, mm. I just feel like the applied work really calls to me, to something that I, I never did when mm. I was um, a psychologist. So when I think of psychology traditionally in post-positivism, I think of mm -hmm. experimental conditions in the lab, and you just talked about long-term deployments in the field. Right. So how do right. you play out a post-positivist approach right. within so work? One of my, my favorite uh, titles was uh, A Text Message a Day Keeps the Pulmonologist Away. <laughs> and we actually this won. This is a paper. That's this right. Is... That's right. And we actually mm. won a replicae award. Mm -hmm. They give those out every decade, it seems, where people are like, oh, my goodness, people do replicate. But it was a replication study. We had built this simple text message where, again, in the field, three to, um, three to four months, they got a text message a day. And we found that when that happened, kids had improved lung function. Mm -hmm. And you think, why? Mm -hmm. And then again, back to my background, we looked at theory, so the health belief model and mm -hmm. whether that mattered. But to me, the, you know, if you figure out it works once, Right? Most computer scientists were like, great, it's done. Yes. But for me, it was like, why? Why did it work? Maybe it didn't work. Maybe it's yeah. just, you know, type one error or yeah. whatever. So um, that desire, right? And then how do we make it scalable? And then if it is based on a theory, then it shouldn't just work with asthma because it's not about asthma. It should work with diabetes. So I ran the study again with diabetics. And then I ran the study again with people that had congenital heart disease. And then I say, hold on. Maybe the program is was scalable. So now we can develop an SMS, we called it SMS Press, the idea that a nursing student or somebody who has no technical background could actually run these studies. Because mm -hmm. I think that's one of the fascinating things. That's so much of the computation that, you know, can be transformative to other fields. is something that we could, you know, our second year mm. undergrads are doing. Yeah. But there are often debates, I don't know about your faculty, yes. but in some of yes. you know, faculties that I'm familiar with, often debates about, what constitutes computer science and you know That's like right. is is what you were just talking about more um uh health psychology contribution you know what's computer right. science about it but then right. you talked about ways in which you've got this right a tailorable platform that right. you know, a nursing student can use exactly so can you talk a little bit about how that interplay happens because so you're really right. straddling these and so i think that that's exactly it i think that 
first of all, a health psychologist is not going to build their own system. No. A health psychologist is not going to think about how to scale the system they build. And they actually don't actually, they have their theories, but they don't have the, um, the wherewithal to change the actual systems they build. So I think that, first of all, uh, not only that, but one of the things that makes it different is that a health psychologist is always about the psychologist, their theories, their notions. Mm-hmm. And HCI really is about, you know, the user, or really is about the human, really is about um, providing, uh, you know, toolkits to other domains. So, you know, I work with uh, respiratory therapists, or I work with, now with clinical psychologists. They have a a set of skills that I don't have, but my goal is to work within their skill set and to find what technology will actually do the job. Mm. So that's very different from mm. a kind of, as a psychologist, I would stay with SMS and I do it for 20 years because I keep tweaking it. But for me, it's about, okay, so now that it worked, what would be, what would be a better interface for children? Right? Or what happens when technology changes? Or what happens when we have other people that have low literacy? So it really is about the interface. It's about this, this idea of being useful and usable in a way that psychologists don't think about the actual interface or the actual technological yeah. artifact. Did you think that way in the beginning or has this no. been a journey? Mm-mm. I think, um, it really has been a journey. It has been a, uh, first of all, a way of understanding the kind of, you know, back to the lexicon we use mm-hmm. where I would call something one thing and yeah. then computer scientists call yeah. it something else. So I think that's, that's one part of it is learning what the right way is to talk to colleagues. Uh, but I think the other is understanding the paradigms because it's not just about the lexicon, mm-hmm. but again, mm-hmm. a psychological term, right? Yeah. A computer scientists want to talk about paradigms, yeah. but when you're saying user centered design, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Right. And so it took a long time for me to, be able to internalize and to find terms to speak about what these methodologies were, right? And so I think that that's the, you know, that's been the first, I don't know, I guess six years of, of my life is, or rather, as I told you, really feeling like, you know, I got another doctorate <laughs> and, uh, right, and maybe did a postdoc and, and then feeling like, okay, right? So I, I find it interesting that you've talked about yourself and your identity in two different ways, just in the in our yeah. conversation. So in the earlier on you said you're a psychologist oh and then you sort of had this hesitation right. and then later on you talked about and as I've become a computer scientist. Right. So it's really interesting. I was talking to Bob Kraut and you know I'm embarrassed to say that when I first met him I didn't know who he was because you know it's not the you know not the kind of megastars I'm used to meeting and so he was very funny. I was giving a talk at CMU and I said I'm a green card you know card carrying member of ACM. And he came up to me and said, so am I. And I said, oh, so nice to meet you. And then I went to meet him and, you know, and he's so wise. And then I figured out he was a psychologist. And I said, oh, you know, oh, sensei, you know, will you tell me when when will I become a computer scientist? And he said, I've never felt more like a psychologist. And so that was kind of scary. Um, But I feel that I feel that now the way I think about problems, I think I really am more of a computer scientist. Mm-hmm. I am more of an HCI researcher. I do think about the interface. I do think about what makes it useful and usable in a way, again, kind of internalizing those concepts that are central that I would never think about as a computer scientist. 
but you're almost a hybrid, aren't you? Yes. Because you've also talked oh, about sure. ways in which you ask different sorts of questions to your computer science, your sort of more mainstream computer science colleagues. I don't know what right. to call anyone anymore, but right. do you know that you, yes. you, you, you said you kept wanting to ask and why and right. why, what makes this work? And I, and I think that that's where again, the kind of training, right? Mm. So I have a toolkit. Mm-hmm. I have a way of understanding the world. Mm-hmm. And then I apply this toolkit mm-hmm. um, to these problems. And now the problems are very different from what I would have encountered mm-hmm. as a psychologist. And so um, uh, not only that, but then understanding the interplay between, you know, the role of sensors and now thinking about how to answer this question with a new set of tools. Mm. Right. And so in that sense, I have augmented my toolkit, you mm. know, over the last decade, which I think we all have to do to be relevant. Did you think about your skill set as a tool set beforehand? No. Right. Because it's like, right. When you're a fish in water, what do yeah. you know? Yeah. So, so I think that it was, it wasn't, it wasn't until I came to computer science that I, um, I was forced to try to understand, you know, what is this? What is it that I can bring to the table? And then how do I talk about it? And so the way that I was able to articulate what I did in HCI was I said, well, when I think about, you know, user-centered design and you think about the kind of canonical, you know, um, four-step or, or four-concept part, I'm, you know, I'm all about the requirements gathering or needs assessment, right? That's the tool. Those, those are tools I have. But you had to learn the terms. You had to learn that exactly, they were the that, terms that's what they're called. That this that's other right. this other funny set of people yes, that you are now working with. Exactly. Using. And so now when I talk about my expertise, I say that my expertise is in needs assessment mm. and um, like formative and summative evaluation, because that's exactly right. It's very hard for me to ideate, right? It's not mm. the again, it's not the kind of of uh, things I've developed. And I am very um, I'm not interest that interested in, in in new artifacts, although sometimes I think if it's necessary, yeah. I'll have to think about it. Yeah. So again, you've got a, set, a really clear sense of what you can bring and that's what right. you're interested in, mm-hmm. which is sort of a complementary thing. Right, right. And that's yeah. also being yeah. some place yeah. for a decade. Yeah. I mean, what you're saying also suggests that we could reflect more on the ways in which we're fish in water mm. and what we take for granted. Right. Now, you had that shaken up because you were put into this situation where you were, what, a fish fish on land or something, like something totally different. Mm -hmm. That makes you sort of go, whoa, you know, how do I communicate in it? And then it could be useful for... But I think that that, and I think that that's absolutely right. And I think that that is one of the, early on, that's one of the things I understood was different about computer science and psychology. In psychology, we're always operationally defining things. So then if I say I do X then everybody knows what I mean because I define it. Whereas when I first came into computer science, it was expected that I knew. And then I'd have to, and then I, nobody ever said, oh, you see in HCI, we have this paradigm. And maybe it's because I didn't know the language, right? I don't think people have normally talked that about notion, that. Yeah. Right? But this idea of, of what we're doing is central to mm. understanding how to move forward mm. Or when I first came into HCI, to me it was striking that we spoke of the user. And one of my favorite jokes is the only user I'd ever met before was a drug user. So it was kind of a weird, you know, a weird term to use. But then I would, yeah. But then I'd say, 
but hold on, but this person has a brain and this person has been enculturated. So how do, how do we, and so I think that that's where, you know, and then I was able to read, um, uh, monographs that spoke to me. So when I read, um, um, uh, the theory, uh, Yvonne Rogers theory book, it made complete sense to me. I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, now I understand where mm-hmm. this field is. Right. And she comes from a psychology yes. background. As and so well. that, and so the fact that she was able to document this for yeah. me made it easy for me to yeah. read it and for me to have a sense of understanding where this field was and where this field yeah. was going. So to me, it's, to me, it's still very important. And, and I think that, um, I think that that's one of the things I've, I've gotten pretty good at doing is being mm. able to explain to mm. people. I was giving a, a talk at Yale. And I said to the, um, to the in head of the department faculty? in computer science, mm-hmm. and I said to the faculty, Oh, what should I talk about? She's like, Can you please tell us what HCI is? We've had all these people come through and they've never told us. They just say they're HCI. Yeah. So what is it? What, what does that even mean? Mm. So I think that even within our community, even yeah. within our, the wider community, I think that it serves a purpose to have a, a definite understanding. Mm. Of what it is yes. that we mean. Yeah. And how we operate and view the world. Because, you know, you talked about your toolkit of, you know, giving you a way of understanding the world and being much more reflective about each of our own ways of understanding the world and our own lexicons and paradigms. Right. Um, yeah. So I think that that's something that, um, that's again important to me, probably mm-hmm. because of, right, the way I was raised yeah. in psychology, yeah. right? But it, as we increasingly get these, mixed up teams of people because you know the sorts of problems you're talking about and all of the different disciplines that you talked about interacting with not just computer scientists if we're going to solve some of these hard problems we need to know how to talk together and work together and where each other's coming from. and not only that but understand what the expectations are because that's the other thing Right. When I first came into, and of course it works in our favor as computer scientists when we put things up there and we make it look like they work mm. and then they actually don't work mm. except in very specific ways. Mm. Right. So it serves our purpose as a community. But, um, other times I think when people come on board, so when I meet clinicians, so my area is, is um, M health or mobile health. And they expect for me to build X. Mm. It's like, that's not what I do. On a bad day, that's, that's not what I do. On a good day, it's not what I do. So this kind of expectations of what computer scientists do is really interesting. And so I just wrote a chapter for a, a book that's coming out about teams. And this idea of, you know, this is what you can expect from a computer scientist, right? From a colleague. We're not going to build Instagram for X or whatever you think your solution is, because you might not even know what the solution is. Mm. And so, um, so where is this? So this book chapter is about teamwork. It's about teams. And, um, it's a really big national institutes of health, uh, are the editors. And I mm-hmm. think there's like 20 articles and they, um, they asked Gregory and I to write a, write a chapter on interdisciplinary teams. And nice. so it was coming from this perspective of as a computer scientist, as a psychologist, and now you have, you know, clinicians. So then what do we expect? How do you move? What is that kind of, what are those set of expectations that you should bring to the table? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was, again, back to the practice of articulating what mm. you do. 
so that we're very clear about what's a deliverable. Yeah. And Blandford also has a really interesting paper reflecting on mm. some of these experiences, you know, working in a, in similar contexts, which is good that these conversations are happening. Yes. Um, if we can go back to when you first came to Georgia Tech, and yes. so it's clearly been a, a learning journey, mm-hmm. but, you know, sitting now looking back, clearly a, a positive one that right. you're energised by mm. just seeing. What were some of the practical things that helped in getting into it? Because, I mean, it, it must have been different culturally in all sorts of ways. So I think um, I definitely had to, if you just think about it practically, what it means to do a dissertation or what it means to do an undergraduate, that means that by the time you get to undergrad, like how many papers have you read? By the time you get to grad school, how many papers have you read? And so for me, you know, I had to really immerse myself. I had to really just, if not start at the beginning, I had to really work closely with the grad students so that they could, you know, and ask them to really read the papers, right? So one of my pet peeves, again, coming to um, to computer science was this idea that, you know, people do uh, cognitive walkthroughs. Oh, can you give me a reference? Because in psychology, if you're going to use a term, you're going to back it up with a reference. And they're like, oh, I learned how to, and I was like, what? And so it was very funny because I was just talking <laughs> yeah. to a grad student who took my intro to cognitive, my, it was the first time I t- taught the graduate intro to HCI. And she was telling somebody, she taught me all I knew about cognitive walkthroughs and, you know, I, everything I know. And I was like, I just got you to read the paper so that you wouldn't be embarrassed. You could say Paulson, you know, it's a kind of canonical paper, but, Again, um, I always wanted to know, or, or some people say, oh, I did contextual inquiry. And I'd say, oh, really? What does that mean? You know? And they're like, well, you know, contextual inquiry. And I'd be, no, no, I don't know, actually. And again, it's, it's okay. But for me, because I didn't know, I had no mm, kind of yeah. history to you support You weren't the fish me. in the water that Mm-mm. also I couldn't. I, I didn't that, have or, that structure. Yeah, yeah. So I really had to find a lot of structure. Yeah. I really had to. And this is where being down the street or down the um, corridor from Gregory, I could mm. ask him. Mm. I could say, wait, what is this? What do you yeah. mean? But that's pretty brave of you in a way because, you know, yeah. like that's that sort of saying... I'm a professor and I don't know it. Yeah. what are you talking about? Yeah. And was that risky? I think in it any was, way? but I think and and again back to this idea of temperament, right? Yeah. So this kind yeah. of biological aspect. My advisor in grad school was the world expert on temperament and he would always say, "Rosa, you were blessed with a good temperament." And I was because, you know, I I don't mind asking and yeah. I don't mind yeah. in that sense you know, being vulnerable. Yeah. And sometimes it pays off and sometimes it yeah. doesn't, right? Sometimes it didn't. But, you know, I had to be true to who I was. And there were times that, you know, that the reception was not positive and people didn't answer my questions and were insulted. But, mm. you know, I had mm. much more to gain than to mm. lose at that yeah. point. So that's very much reflecting the whole growth mindset, isn't it? That's and right. The, the that's learning right. mindset that's, right. that's so trendy at the mm. moment. That's right. But it's really important for learning. And for that, that authenticity. Right. Good role modeling. Yeah. Um, but again, it's just, it comes back to, you know, wanting to be a member of the community. Cause that's mm. the other thing mm. is that I think somebody might have said, forget it. I'm going to go to, you know, to another university and be a psychologist. But by that time, I was really back to the values. I really believe that 
computer science can really uh, help support, you know, the betterment of mankind. Like, I really believe that. I really believe that, you know, that these sensors that, that we're working with, that we're going to make life better for clinicians and people with PTSD and not just mm. in the U.S. but elsewhere. Mm. How could I not fight this fight? Yeah. Right? It wasn't just about whether babies are born knowing mm. number, mm. but whether we can build a simple mm. app. And I had that. I mean, that was a kind of a quick success. My little app that could make kids better. Their asthma was better. And there was, you know, ecological validity. So the the middle-class kids, their quality of life improved when their asthma got better. The low SES kids, right? Their quality of life didn't improve. How could it? They were still living in the same. So I think that that to me was just uh, so empowering that I, I just thought it was a fight mm. worth having. Mm. And so it's um, it's good to be on the other side. So is that finding your why? I guess so. Yeah, I think I think that must be that must be it. Right? It is a it is a powerful thing to be able to feel like like you could change the world, like mm. you could make things better. And if that's what you can do, mm. then it's worth it for me. And, anyway. and worth the discomfort of the fight. Yes, for sure. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So you've talked about Gregory being an amazing mentor. Was yes. that a formal mentorship relationship where you'd have regular meetings no, or anything? Or did no. you name it we as were mentoring? The, this, or and how did that and it's out? definitely an unofficial mentoring. I mean, we were in the same lab. He was always incredibly gracious and you know people know Gregory about and he'll he'll tell you the way things are so it isn't as if he's you know sweet and cuddly or something right he's not one to hand feed you whatever but I think for him first of all he respected my intellect right and and not only that but he respected my feedback so there was times when you know his tone was inappropriate and when I understood that I was in a room with, you know, 90% male and the alpha male was talking to me in a certain way and that the students were going to see this as modeling, right? And he did respond. But that's, I mean, that's why Gregory is, I mean, that's why we're still friends. Mm-hmm. And that's why I respect them because, you know, faced with evidence that what, we, what he was doing was inappropriate, he changed course. And was, did you talk to him in the moment or did you go to him afterwards? You know, we tried different tacks. I think any relationship changes where it used to be where sometimes after, you know, after a meeting, I'd say, you know, Greg, it's not appropriate. This is how students are going to take it. And then he'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. And there'd be other times when I would just be, he would raise his voice and I'd raise my voice too. And so I think that, you know, we, we, I mean, it's been a decade that we've been working together. So you know, as any relationship, it changes. And, and now I know that I have values that are different than his because I am, you know, into concepts and theories. And sometimes he calls that navel gazing, you know, and, and that's fine because I've become my own person. Mm. Right. And Mm. so I have different ways of, of addressing some of the same questions he was looking at. And so, um, we work together I mean, we still advise um, a student or two here or there, but we we work in, in different f- spheres now mm. because he was always looking forward, right? He's doing incredible stuff looking at computational surfaces. You go, right? But, you know, mm. I'm going to help somebody now. Mm. 
but he was an important part of you becoming your own person. Oh, definitely. Oh, he's, yeah. And I love the becoming because you didn't say become. It's still an ongoing. It is, right? But I mean, I think that that's, I think that's what, you know, years of developmental psychology literature Mm. says that it's in the process of, that it's a, it's a verb, right? That we are changing, that even though that there's aspects of our personality which are going to remain the same, that we respond to the environment and that we, um, and that we change and that's a good thing. Mm. Yeah. You and your husband were both working at Georgia Tech. We both work at Georgia Tech, yes. In the same, um, the way we, in the same, I guess it's in the same, uh, college mm-hmm. and then he is in computer science so the kind of traditional mm-hmm. systems theory databases and then i am in interactive computing which is anytime you have a human and um and technology so yeah. you have vision robotics hci have there been any issues that have come up both working in the same college no i mean i think it wasn't anything that we came up with i mean mm-hmm look, we're in a world with people and people are going to have differences. And maybe at first it was kind of weird that somebody dropped me, you know, without a forwarding address in the department <laughs> of this, right? Um, but I think that, I think truth accrues and I was able to show that, you know, I was good for the department and that, you know, I was a good colleague and, and that I had things to offer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back to toolkits, you know, that I was a stats person, which in psychology, I'm not the stats person, right? But if you're in an HCI, then, you know, relative. that's right, exactly. <laughs> so that I was somebody that some, yeah. you know, somebody could knock on the door and I would have answers or I would have ways of thinking about it or that I, I'm very good experimental design. So all these things that, right, the summative evaluation, um, the quantitative side anyway. So I think that... Did you deliberate... So that that's obviously doing this very sort of helpful behavior mm-hmm. and someone knocking on the door and you being prepared right. to answer. Did you do that as a deliberate strategy? I am going to... You know, this will be a way for me to get no, in or is that just no, you? No, that's my personality, yeah, yeah. right? That's back to... Yeah. It was easy for me to do that because I'd do it anyway yeah. or I'd want to sign up and... Yeah. and um, you know, because people that are listening to this podcast don't want to just know the pretty things that happen. Mm. I mean, there were times when I would try to sign up for something. You know, there was a, a vacant position. And I say, well, nobody's doing it. I'll do it. And they say, no, you can't do it. And I say, why? Why can't I do it? They said, oh, because this is for academic faculty, not research faculty. Ah, so that that right? hasn't been clear. So oh, right. tell, tell us that difference. So the way that it works in the U.S. Mm. is we have academic faculty, mm-hmm. and that's what you think about as a professor, right? So okay, kind on of a tenure track. HR, tenure track. And then you have research faculty, and this is usually soft money, and this is usually not with teaching. And so... But you uh, do teaching. Yes, I do. And so I was able to, you know, work out uh, a package that was good for me, Right. And so, but initially when I first got there and they'd say, well, we need somebody to do X. I'd say, I'll do X. And they'd say, no, that's not something a research faculty can do. And I'd say, why not? I don't mind not doing it, but you better have a, you know, a kind of uh, some reason or somewhere where I can go. What are the policies? Right. So I'm very much a policy person, just like I'm very much a timekeeper. Mm. So it's fine for you to tell me I can't do it. 
but they're, you know, but tell me what the policy is and what the rationale yeah. is. Yeah. And so I think it, again, it probably helps that, you know, that I don't take no for an answer just because, yeah. right? That I'd want to, you know, did know you get what the into some is. of those roles? What? I did. I did. And so, you know, kind of the, uh, you don't know if truth accrues or whatever you want to call it, but, um, again, I'm now the associate chair of graduate studies. Yeah. As a research, in, from a research position. Yes. Right. And some of it might mean that, you know, um, well, I was nominated for one, right? So that my colleagues did see that I did care and it wasn't just a service role mm. and that I really was commitment to what it meant. I mean, that's, it's a, it's one of the biggest compliments my, you know, my colleagues mm. have given me. But does that mean you're also still on soft money? It does not okay. because the way that it works and the way that, you know, back to having a package that works for you, we were able to, I was able to work out a situation where, you know, my funding comes from different, for different streams. So I teach, right? And so that was a way to stay and, 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 you know, be a full member of the community. Mm. And are you happy in that research position or do you I'm, want to move into an academic position? I don't position? know. I go back and forth. I mean, I feel like... At this point, I've been doing this for 10 years, and I'm so happy that in some sense, you know, it doesn't matter what you call me as long as you call me, right? Yeah. You can say that. Yeah. So with my position, I can be a PI on, on grants, and I get to do these things. Um, what could you get to do differently in The only thing track? that I can think of right now is being a professor is a human resource title. Right. So I can't be officially called prof. I always say I'm Dr. Ariaga. So, you know, it's the kind of silly things, right? Yeah. So I'm not a professor, right? And I'm a research scientist. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I get people to call me Dr. Ariaga, which is fine. So you're okay with this? Yeah. I'm, I think, again, you know, I, I get to do all the things I now love. Yeah. So I am happy. That's good. Yeah. So tell us a bit more about the chair of graduate affairs and what right. you said that, you know, people could see that you really cared and were committed so to back it. So you know, back to where we started our conversation, mm -hmm. when we think about training, yeah, so, all right, so I've been thinking about this a lot. You know how you say those who can do and those who can't teach, <laughs> right? So I've come to say those, or I've thought about it, I don't know how it's going to sound. I say those who can do and those who care become administrators. I do care. Mm -hmm. You know, I was able to, I mean, I had an incredible graduate experience where it was clear at, at Harvard. Harvard, yes, yeah. where um, institutionally they really cared about the whole person. And how did that play out? So the, the way it do? played out is, for example, they had a winter, we had a, a we had a, a house, which was a, a place where we could collect as grad students, and they had fellows. They had people that were there, other grad students that were there to make sure that we could be whole people. So, for example, we had um, sports fellows. Um, we had a winter waltz and a spring swing where the orchestra and the band were all grad students. So there were creative outlets. I learned how to row, you know? <laughs> I learned, I, I learned how to play ultimate frisbee. We would play against the undergrads. But the idea was that we know you're going to do great work if you can stay sane. So here are some well, ways of staying sane. That's very radical. Yes. Do they yes. still do that? Yes. Yes. And of course, it's not, you know, I'm not saying, 
Again, I had the personality. I wanted to learn how to row. But the fact that we have um, the tone that is set, yes. that it's okay to be a whole person. And in fact, you need to be doing exactly. these things. And so I think that that's, you know, I send out emails to the grad students and I remind them about the whole self. And I remind them that, you know, um, they need to actively engage other parts of their life. Yeah. And so I think that, again, has a value. And not only that, but what does it mean for you to be a grad student at Georgia Tech in interactive computing? What does it mean about the toolkit that you're actually developing? What does it mean um, that this we have policies? Toolkit. Right. Yeah. But also, what does it mean that we have policies so that student, one of the most unnerving things is... Uh, feeling like things are arbitrary. So how do we make it clear to students what it means for them to to be doing well and and that the department is behind them, right? That they're not supposed to be mini-me, so if it doesn't work with Gregory, they can move on to somebody else and still be successful. Mm-hmm. All these things that mm-hmm. need to be articulated to students so mm-hmm. they can feel like um, somebody was just telling me that we fit in the org chart. Right. Somebody, one of the students came to see me and she said this interesting thing where somebody was talking about, you know, grad school or, you know, the whole institution and grad students weren't on there. Yeah. And so, right, that's really interesting. And so how do we communicate that to students? Because I think that when we do. That they're valued when they're not on the old That's right. They're invisible. That's right. And not Mm. only that, but that, you know, I always raise my hand and I say, if you do what you're supposed to do, the administration's behind you. It doesn't matter that you no longer work with X or Y or Z. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I want to un- unpack each of those things because it seems like there's a lot yeah, of it's practical exciting. strategies yeah. behind them that could be really interesting and for other people to hear how you're doing mm-hmm. them. So you just picking up on that department behind me. Yes. It's one thing for you to say that, right. but but – a student has to negotiate their personal relationships with that supervisor who they don't get on with, who they want to move from, who they may be worried will sabotage their chances within the faculty right. or within the school or college. And But the point is that we have policies. We have policies in place. And so there has to be a sense that those policies are true, right, and that they will continue working for you if you do all the things that you should. If you meet your milestones, we're not going to say, oh, well, that's it. You know, we have to get you to a new advisor and that is something you need to do. But it doesn't mean that just because you stop working with X, you know, you're out of here. Right. That's a lot of uncertainty. And that, you know, again, can lead to a lot of mental health issues. Absolutely. And so I, I think that, again, to be able to clearly articulate what milestones are, and what it means to progress through these milestones and what it means for people to be successful under what circumstances do they, you know, um, are they, you know, is, is the evidence. And I always say, look, it's not failure, it's feedback, mm. right? Mm-hmm. How do we give you the feedback that you can do well or that perhaps this is not the right place for you? Mm-hmm. And that's fine too. Have you got any specific examples of how you do that in terms of the languaging? So I think with that obviously right, naming people. Right, no, no. So um you know, for example, we have a set of reviews at Georgia Tech. 
but they're kind of hidden, you know, in the website. So now whenever I send out an email, right, I remind them to, um, uh, to know their responsibilities, right? You have rights, but you have responsibilities. And here is the set of milestones we have. And here is how you, you know, you're supposed to meet them. And to say all these things that we should know, but we don't, that you should be meeting regularly with your advisor, that you should be, uh, clearly documenting what you are doing and how you're doing it and that there is a, a way to show that you've been showing up, right? And of course, one of the things we do is we get into avoidant behavior and then we don't do these things. But if that's what, but if the situation gets to that point, then uh, the administration is not going to know that you've been doing your part. So then how do we set it up so that you know as a grad student what's expected of you, what are the milestones, how do you reach them? And then where do you go if things aren't working out? Mm-hmm. That there are a buds person, mm. right? That, you know, I might be behind you, but you might also think that I'm administration, which I am. Okay, well, here's another place you can go. There's a faculty of buds person, there's a student of buds person. So do you have a meeting face-to-face meeting with the grad students at the beginning of an academic year and so we communicate just, all this again? We just started, um, again, I've only been in this position for six months. Oh, okay. But for example, I did send out, you know, these emails where we have the list. I met for with all of the incoming interactive computer students so that I went through them. You know, I'm having a first kind of, we had a, a, a student appreciation and now we're having a, a September kind of convocation. We'll come and have lunch. And I put the milestones up, you know, I printed them up and put them out so that people can see them. And so just trying to make these things visible. I know, because often you said they're hidden on the yes. web. And that's that's one of the sort of challenges, isn't it? Right. Because we can have, there may be clear policies and processes, but it can be so daunting starting as a grad student yeah. and, and just trying to remember that they exist, even if you right. heard it first time and right. then but where to find to keep, them. But again, if I think, you know, that, you know, that's my role, then I don't feel like I'm hand-holding them no. and they should know. I feel like, you know, that's my role. My yeah. role is to keep the trains moving, keep the signposts up and readily available, mm. right? And, and, and again, to remind everybody of what their rights and responsibilities mm. are. And that includes, you know, the faculty. I was just going to, that was going to be my next yeah. question because part of your job would also be <laughs> educating the faculty about their role in all of this. Or reminding them, reminding, right? Yeah. Or maybe it means yeah. that we do a better job onboarding new faculty. Yeah. Right? So what are you doing for onboarding new faculty? So, for example, we had our first, uh, we had a retreat. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I did in the retreat was, uh, once again, start from the beginning and this say... This was with just with new faculty? Interactive. No, this was all of the, okay, all yes. of the, all of our group. We had mm-hmm. a retreat. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing was basically reminding everybody, you know, kind of things that are coming up that need their attention. Right? Because again, even people that really care and really want to do it, they've got 20,000 things to do. Yeah. And so then my role really is just to be the reminder in chief, right? Yeah. Just to just keep saying, just. Yeah. Here they are, right? So that your language there about reminder in chief yeah. is very much a lovely sort of service role. You know, you're not the you're not doing this as I'm reminding you as the boss and no, you know with no. the, with the mm-hmm. whip out. It's yeah. it's, uh, it's I know my you're pleasure. Bu- it's, I know you're yeah. busy, and you know, if this can help you, not only that, but it's it's my pleasure. Like mm. this is my role. Like I think. 
that is it's so important that you know we're all on the same page and here it is here's what it means for us to all be on the same page and then it makes everybody happy because then the staff is always happy because also happy because they're not being asked to do things yes right which is hard yes so um would that be just understanding the temporal rhythms of the academic year and saying definitely rem- yeah reminded that you have to get your i don't know your course profiles That's done right. by the end of blah. That's right. Or what's expected that we have these again these things that we always have. We have uh two yearly reviews with or PhD reviews. Okay. The so faculty gets together, they need to be in by X. These are the dates of the two reviews. Here they are. And then in your calendar 3 weeks before, right? Right? Or you know that we're going to have applications to review and right and there is Lock a structure right there's mm-hmm. a structure to help you mm-hmm. and i'm going to remind you what the structure is mm-hmm. right hmm. yeah that all sounds very good um and it connects with the conversation i'm having with someone else at the moment around how to better support sort of on onboarding processes mm-hmm. um you also talked about so that also picks up on the what it means to be doing well mm-hmm. in setting the milestones and giving clarity so right. that's clarity for both the students and the supervisors yes. who are in it together that's right in in doing this um you also said about reminding people about their you know being a whole self and actively engaging in other parts of yeah. in all parts of their life what, right tell us more about that and how you i mean so again what what can i do all i can do is just uh give them permission, right? In some sense. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go out and enforce it, but it's funny, you know, I've had I've had a lot of students come back to me and say that was so nice. Like I've been here X number of years and nobody's ever said that. I know. We right? don't say it. Right? And so just the fact that somebody will say it gives you permission yes. to be a whole person. Yes. And so and again, if we set if we set the tone, right? Then and and sometimes i mean i don't know about europe but in the us you know mental health and students is so important we can't yeah. ignore it no. we can't we can't say that it's just being warm and fuzzy because no. this is you know this is survival this is the difference between mental health and mm. mental breakdown repeated studies in every every many different contexts are showing increasing incidences of yes. um mental health problems right. in grad students and faculty definitely actually. and yeah. so then how do we if if at least there's a reminder yeah that you know and i sent out an email and i said remember this is the most important thing you can do yeah. right set up those schedules meet your friends for coffee what are you going to do to stay healthy in mind and body how many you know just and also all the things we know about uh, about um you know having actual uh milestones you're going to walk a mile every day yes you have to come up with a goal right uh, a goal that's you know you're not going to run a marathon you're going to walk a mile you're going to meet a friend for coffee you're not yes. going to whatever yeah. those things are hard yeah. but you know i think that if an administrator tells you it's okay i think it goes a long way mm-hmm. right i think we do see that yeah. and then the other thing which you know i was reminded um so i had the first onboarding of all the grad students and the first and thing is that a, a meeting and so first year students so all the first year students usually the way we used to do it was yeah. all the area so HCI ML robotics they all met separately yeah. and that was it and so this was the first year where everybody came together mm-hmm. and i kind of introduced myself introduced you know the administrator reminded them of what we each did and what their role was and then um and the first thing i said was welcome and the second thing i said was you belong here 
right? We all know about imposter syndrome. I remember that from being an from being a grad student. Yeah, you know, somebody saying you belong here. Yeah, and just knowing that this thing is true and it exists. I'm sure many people are still going, sitting yeah. there going, "Oh, you don't know." That's right. <laughs> I'm the one that missed, was under the radar. That's right. But just knowing that yes. that it it yeah. will get better. Yeah. Right. And just that you have somebody say that just makes it feel like it might be true. And I think that belonging and relatedness, again, you know, from right. your psychology background, is yeah. one of the core psychological needs about that sense of belonging and being valued That's right. and not just being seen as someone who's going to produce papers. That's um, right. A cog in the wheel. Yeah. That's right. No. Yeah. And it isn't if we do it right. Mm. And if we do it right, then we get, you know, then we get students that uh, have good models and then they will become... Yeah you know, good faculty members. So I just, you know, you, you said before about, you know, we, we need to tell students that it's okay. And one of my questions was going to be following that. Um, also about the importance, I think, of us showing how to do it in that model sense because yeah. we can tell them, but then if we're still right. sitting there in the office till all hours at night right. or not doing anything that looks after these other aspects of right. our life, right. we're not. Yeah, you know, we're not walking the talk. Right. And I think and I think it's important. I think that I just um there's a literary magazine in the US called N plus one. And um last month they came up with a piece on female faculty mm-hmm. and the dearth mm-hmm. and some statistic about the UK, which I'm sure is true about the US, that there are now less African-American faculty than there were like 20 years ago, which is crazy. But back to a set of values and a way of moving forward. And so, again, as I, as I thought about it, you know, I said, how do we, how do we start systematically providing a structure for this not to be the case? Right. And, and so, for example, this idea that women do more service. Yeah. Right. And this question of how do we, how do we moderate that? You know, and, or even there is this really interesting fact that, for example, men are more likely to cite themselves. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Right. So then, you know, you ask your, your male faculties to cite you too. Or, right. So then how do we start? Or if women are going to do, do more service in a lab, then how do we make a structure so that all the lab service uh, are there for everybody to see yeah. and for there to be transparency? Yeah. And with transparency comes accountability. And then, you know, then the question was, well, who's going to make up this sheet? So now the advisor is going to do it? I said, right, but maybe, maybe I'll do it because then... Again, I'm modeling this behavior, and then you know everybody. What everybody has to do is just adopt it. Mm-hmm. But, but so, it, is this a sheet where everyone gets to share the service, or is this a sheet someone may be doing all the service, but actually no? The idea it is that there is a if there are you know eight service responsibilities, then who are the people that are doing them, and then how do you make sure that you know that people that you know if John hasn't done any service in a year. Mm-hmm. That you actually say, "Hey, John, it's time to step mm-hmm. up," or mm-hmm. how do you change that, mm-hmm. right? Or, or as an administrator, for us to know. 
It's, yeah. I'm not saying it's easy, no, but I'm no. saying that we need to at least have structures in place, right? The kind of yeah, totally. scaffolding. Because that's that's one of the challenges, you know, like that I've called this changing academic life yes. in the big and the small sense of, yeah. you know, we can make changes like making sure we look after our whole selves. Yes. But if the structure and the systems are still promoting different yes. ways or aren't changing as well to support more holistic ways of being and recognising all sorts of different service or whatever, um, it's it, – you know, we might be saving our sanity a little bit, but right. it's not making any difference in the long term. We need to operate at all of these levels. Right. And I think that that's where maybe the, the best, maybe best practices, mm. again, maybe that's where we actually, you know, quantitatively evaluate mm. it. And then if it's not working, because we can do a lot of things that make us feel better, but if they're actually not working, mm. right? So how do we, how do we set up those structures so that we can see if things are getting better? Because I mean, you would have asked anybody, you think, yeah, it's getting better, but if they aren't, you know, we always make fun of the CEOs, you know, there's only X number of women. Well, if we look at the ratio of, you know, people that get PhDs and then people that get full professorships. Yes, it's a, right. It gets narrow very quickly, doesn't it? I don't know what the proportion is when you think about it to CEOs Mm. and females Mm. in business, but we have a sense that we're doing better than we are. And I think we need to be reminded that that we're not. Mm. And then we need to start, again, back to systematically understanding maybe we can do it. Mm. And also in the recognition and rewards. So there's one thing making, say, the service roles visible, but making them count as well in any sort of evaluation processes because it's very much skewed to the right. uh, the individual hero doing their paper publication and getting their grants, but they can only do that because all of this other stuff That's is happening. Right. And because there's all this infrastructure. Somebody yeah. else is yeah. getting students accepted into the program yeah. or somebody else yeah. is doing all these other things that make a department run. Mm. Yeah, they're interesting challenges. And it's it's great that you're really thinking about these and acting and I can really see the way your background as well your toolkit is helping you in this role because you're being far more systematic in your thinking about it and structured than I don't know I imagine I would be yeah you know because I'm not right I mean I think that definitely and again I mean I'm I mean I, I feel like again now's a time where you know I am being in a crossway paid to think about this. Mm. So then, again, if I care and I'm an administrator, then I'm going to do the best job I can, mm. right? Yeah. Um, so what plans do you have coming up? You know, only being in yeah. six months, I guess, yeah. part of that has been just getting your feet yeah. under the desk in a yeah. way. Yeah, no, I think it's true. So, again, um, putting in structures that make it easy for people to know where they are in the academic year and what's expected mm-hmm. of them. Um, how will you, how, what, what's your thinking now about how you can right. do that structure? So for example, one of the things I did before I became associate chair was um, we used to handle the qualifying exams separately between is that, areas. Is that the end of first year? Uh, qualifying PhD. exam the no. second year second in year. In interactive computing. And that lets people go on to do their PhD. Yes, yes. And so, for example, one of the, you know, kind of one of the milestones of, of 
you know, my leading this effort was that we came up with a, a timeline for what had to happen the year that you were going to qualify, right? In October, you should, you know, uh, in September, you should be identified. Then, you know, the area lead is going to meet with you. Um, the previous June, the, uh, the list of papers or the process would be clear. All of these things we can do to give you a sense that you know what's mm-hmm. going on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is what's expected during the actual 30-minute talk. You should spend no more than five minutes doing the intro, no more. So even at that level. Even at that level. Because, yeah. again, if you have an advisor that has a lot of people do qualifying exams, yeah. then you're going to be fine. But what if you don't? Yeah. And then how do we make it so that it's fair? Mm. So that now everybody is at least supposed to be operating under the same guise. So fairness is a big value for you. Oh, definitely. Right? Otherwise, the haves and the have-nots, yeah. right? So Even for we... timing, because we were just in a paper yeah. session where you were really well, concerned because, about the right. and it's not people fair. getting their it's fair not time. Fair. No, not, yeah, their fair time. And then, so now because you won an award, you're more valuable than the rest of us that didn't win awards, and you should be allowed to go over even more? That kind of, you know... That seems kind of funny to me, mm. right? And uh, I don't know. So I think I'm I'm lucky, right, in that I can speak up. So what about all the other people that can't speak up, mm. right? Yeah. But having people who care is important yeah. for being able to try to speak on their behalf. Right, right. And I think, uh, yeah, I think it's true. But also it becomes a model because now, you know, somebody else will feel like they can speak up or they feel like maybe that person was not right, but somebody did the right thing. Even if they, you know, they were asked to be quiet or not to talk because they didn't win a paper, right? Somebody will feel like they were supported. And I think that that's the important thing. And the more of us who start doing that, the more we'll start to say this is okay as a culture in the yes. same way that, you know, you're saying to people it's okay to take time yeah, off or, right. or to look, do other things. Right. Yeah. And just on that, one of the things I often say to people too is you're actually being selfish if you don't take time off mm. because then you're not going to bring your best self to your research That's work right. and, you know, like you're solving all of these important problems That's and you're right. not bringing your best creative That's you know, right. brain to do it. Imagine if you could, right? Yeah. Imagine if you had yeah. slept. Yeah. Or you were relaxed, yeah. or you were, or whatever. No, I agree. I yeah. think you're right. But again, just this this permission to say, is, yeah. if you work solidly, why do you need mm. to work till excess? Mm. So it's it is role modeling. You've talked yeah. you've talked about that in lots of different ways. Yeah. That's really important. Yeah. Yes. That's part of it. But again, the idea is, what if you don't have a good role model? So Mm. then somebody has to be Mm. able to say, this is what we want as a community. This is what we value. Yeah. Yeah. So you you also talked about having family. Yes. And you've been working full time. Yes. And both of you have been working full time. Yeah. Um, Any particular challenges or stories or any yeah, tricks or anything you had to make that work? About, I don't know about tricks, but again, it's, and it's so many things. So, you know, people can go read this N plus one article, but one of the things they talked about is how, you know, male academician and female academicians, how they, um, if they're in a relationship, 
the men are more likely to say uh, no, like, you know, my career first or whatever. And so... No to what? No, I won't go to, you know, wherever because I have a good job here. So you have to do second best. Or, you know, um, you better take the research scientist position because I've got the faculty position and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, I think that the statistics are that, you know, females, because of things they value, right, um, will take a back seat. Um, And it's, again, there's no wrong or right, Mm. right? There's a set of values that you have. And so, you know, in that sense, I think you have to do what's right for you. But again, for me, fairness is important. Mm. So, Mm. all right, if you're going, then I'm going too. Mm. Or why can't I go? And so I think that, I mean, I do have an above average husband. (laughs) One of my favorite stories is he said, you know, you have to admit I'm above average. I said, and that's why we have have children. If you were an average man, we'd be childless (laughs) or something like that. But, um, no, I think he, well, he understands, right? Happy wife, happy life. Mm-hmm. So. And before we started recording, you you also mentioned that you're already starting to think about sort of a later phase in your yes, life. Tell us yes. about that. So I always say, uh, my husband is from India, mm-hmm. and I always say that we're going to retire in India. Mm-hmm. And you're from Mexico. And I'm from Mexico originally, but I grew mm-hmm. up in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but when I think about, you know, I was thinking, what should we do when we retire? And I said, I know, we're going to have a, like a radio show, because in India, radio is still very popular, mm-hmm. something like mm-hmm. that, where we talk to all of the interesting academicians in our town. And then we'd do an interview show and I'd interview them about their research and it could be historians or musicians or musicologists or whatever. And then my husband said, well, some of them might not speak English. I said, great. So then you can be my sidekick, <laughs> you know, <laughs> my native language sidekick. And then he'll kind of repeat what I say. And, um, yeah, he's not good at being a sidekick. So I'll probably have You'll to see how that works. Yeah. Out. Struggle with the mic. But so um, you're, yeah. you're thinking about moving to India oh, yeah. to retire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We love it. It's a beautiful place. Yeah. That's another big shift. Yeah. It'll be exciting. Yeah. That's for another another podcast, right? What yeah. do we do with our, you know, the you know, the last 20 years or whatever? How do we keep medicine at bay all these things? Yes. Right? Yes. That are important. Yeah. So, yeah. I know they're interesting questions. There's a lot I mean, of We have a, we have a very fixed retirement age at our university yeah. and Right. Well, yeah. not just that, but yeah, I think, and I think it might be fine, right? I mean, mm. we can't, we have to give people jobs. Mm. I think it's it's mm. fine yes. right? if we stay around forever yes. and they and you have new, I mean, is that ethical yeah. to be giving out all these PhDs and they yeah. can't find oh, a job? No, that's a real is it like English people, mm. or not English as in British, mm. but English majors in the U.S., right? What, is that ethical? Yeah. If we know that people can't get jobs, we're going to mm. just keep giving them to be in debt? I mean, or... Giving them PhDs and not helping them understand what their toolkit is that's transferable. That's right. Yeah. It's going back to what you said in the beginning. Yeah, but then I think that if that's the kind of PhD that you're getting where somebody mm. has to tell you what you've learned, yikes. Mm. Mm. But maybe if you're a fish in water. Yeah. It's I, don't know, I, think, I don't know. It's hard because I think many students, they, 
maybe not aware that the options aren't there. We as supervisors need to do much more to help people open up their thinking about possibilities um, from the very beginning and to be more reflective about what particular skills they want to develop that might set themselves up for different options. Definitely. Or keep doors open. Definitely. I think that's true. So um, probably should wrap up. Yeah, Um, for sure. Are there any things that you would want to say that we haven't talked about? Um, Well, I'll give you links to podcasts where I tell you about my research. Yes. Because, this, you know, yep. our goal was really to talk about kind of transitions and real life and all yep. that. And so we did that. Yep. So I'll give you those. But um, just to say that I work in the M Health uh, space, that I look at uh, patient engagement and continuity of care and how technology can help mediate communication. Mm. And then I'll give you a link to tell Great. you about some of my new research. Great. And I'll also get links from you for some of those other papers yeah, that you mentioned, sure. in particular the Definitely. N plus one. Yes. Yeah. Um, Rosa, it's been an absolute pleasure. Well, I have to say that it was it was so nice. And we were talking about communities and about openness. And you're definitely one of those people that, you know, in neuroscience, we have this idea of mirror neurons. Right. And and I feel like that's how, who you are, right? You're kind of open, and I appreciate it. Because sometimes uh, communities aren't as open. And I think we all do better when we are. Yeah, I think so too. But thank you, and have a good flight back to the U.S. tonight. Thank you. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently.